Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where just recently our friends and neighbors voted to make Rick Santorum the Republican nominee for president. You can find us online at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts, or you can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me here in the studio, my fellow doubtcaster, Dr. Professor Luke Galen. And that's it, basically. That's it. That's all we got this week. Um, Jeremy you... and Justin are off recovering from presuppositionalist counter-apologetics hangovers, and uh, they will be back, of course, for our next episode, which will be our live episode. Ooh. Very exciting. That, that. It must be some special event. Yes, our 100th episode. This is episode number 99, unless, of course, you look at iTunes and you'll see it's episode, like, 117 or something. It's kind of so. like Jesus' birth. Where do you count the date from? That's right. So when, when is the millennia? Yes. Um, in today's show, we have interviews with several LDS apostates, um, three gentlemen who have left the Mormon church, um, and some Santorum-inspired God Thinks Like You. We'll wrap up with some props and shit list. But first, I, I wanted to talk a little bit of politics. Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. And, and I wish we didn't have to do this because really the, the scope of the show is about religion, right? But bleeds over a lot of the time. Oh, especially in a year when you have people like the aforementioned Rick Santorum running for office. Um, we even talked about him in the previous episode. So he is, as you said, Luke, before we started, he's the gift that keeps on giving. He keeps on giving. A lot of their candidates have been because Herman Cain made a lot mm -hmm. of gifts that keep on giving. Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman and now and, and now Gingrich and now Santorum. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, Mitt Romney, whose, whose gaffes are not often of a religious nature, but uh, his political gaffes are are tremendous. Uh, amazing that a uh, billionaire has such a hard time relating to the, the normal people. I love Michigan. The trees are the right size here. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we, we buy American cars. My wife has a couple Cadillacs. Yeah. That, but way to be a man of the people. I could just see his, his press people like backstage doing face palms. And... <laughs> but uh, Rick Santorum, um, when he says something stupid, it's almost always intentional, right? Uh, that's what's a little scarier about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, this past Tuesday, that's Leap Day, February 29th, there was the Republican primary here in Michigan, mm -hmm. um, which is an open primary, which means that not just people who are registered Republicans can vote, Democrats can vote, independents can vote. Um, and Mitt Romney ultimately won the primary. This is his home state, after all. He was born... Born and raised in Michigan. But 
he just edged it out yeah, it over was, Rick Santorum. Some might say that even though he won, it was too embarrassingly close that if you have to struggle that hard to yeah. pull off your native state, that Absolutely. And in fact, he came away with one or two more delegates than Santorum. Well, that's, than the, Santorum. that's the controversy yeah. with that is that he was, uh, he was awarded – but the way that delegates are awarded by district and mm-hmm. technically Santorum by the rules of the state should have gotten more delegates. Right, because he won a majority of the counties in the state. But he didn't and so now he filed – I guess his people filed a lawsuit against the Michigan party mm-hmm. for the rule violations but – yeah, so it's it's a whole me- as it often is with Santorum, it is a big sticky mess. Um, <laughs> I wonder what you could be referring to. <laughs> now, of course, we'll be talking more about Mitt Romney later on in our episodes, um, in our interviews with the former Mormons. Uh, not a ton specifically about Mitt Romney, although some, largely though about his Mormon background. Mm-hmm. Rick Santorum. Uh, well, last time we talked about some of the controversial things he said about birth control. Um, he's, of course, opposed to it. He's a, a fundamentalist Catholic. And since Rick Santorum is making himself the poster boy for eroding the separation of church and state, um, within the past couple of weeks, um, this has um, blown up in his face a little bit. We have vomit-inducing amounts of Santorum uh, flowing around here. And, of course, I'm referring to the comments he made about one of JFK's famous speeches. To the Houston ministers. Yes, to a a group of of Protestant ministers, right? Which was done because at the time, being the the first major Roman Catholic person in in the presidential office, he had to reassure them that he wasn't going to take calls from the Vatican and... And do and and uh, and affect let his Catholicism affected policy basically exactly and that was a criticism of Catholic politicians and Catholics in general um, for for centuries really in this country the fact that 1960 was the first time we had a real viable Catholic candidate running for president. Yeah, I think a lot. So a lot of Protestant or people now in general don't realize is that a lot of the things with 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 uh, resistance to having religion in schools was the threat of Catholics setting up their own parallel school system because the Bible readings and such used to be Protestant dominated and a lot of Catholics were like, well, we want our own religious views. We're tired of getting cracked on. And so the, the, Mm -hmm. a lot of the Protestants uh, were threatened by the fact that Catholics might set up a second, you know, parallel system there. Um, And so that, you know, actually, goes back to when separation of church and state and not having religion mm-hmm. schools worked for the Protestants. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. And, and you know what? In the, the speech in question in 1960 that, that Kennedy gave, um, he, he talks about those things. He talks about um, being pro um, the freedom uh, of religion and the separation of church and state and how those are, those are one and the same. Yes, and he said he believed in this where an America where the separation of church and state was absolute. Yes, and somebody's faith was not a basis for their disqualification or exactly. And actually, uh, just this morning, I listened to the entirety of that speech, and it is a great speech on on the subject of the separation. Can you do it with the accent? Can you reproduce it? Well, yes, I can, and here it is. (laughs) So it is apparently necessary for me to state once again, not what kind of church I believe in 
for that should be important only to me. But what kind of America I believe in? I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. Wow, that sounds almost James Madisonian. It really does. I mean, this is this is one of the clearest, strongest statements for the separation of church and state. And, of course, the way Rick Santorum interpreted this as saying that religion and religious people, Santorum said, should have no voice in the public square. Yeah, in the public. He was – and that's actually a uh, – people don't – this didn't get as much publicity, but a while back I think Romney commented, commented on this speech too. He was also trying to reassure – it was at one of those things where there was a lot of ministers, I don't know if yeah, it was a prayer yeah. breakfast, where he was trying to reassure them about his – Mormon views not mm-hmm. affecting his policy, but when he brought up the candy speech, he also criticized it from that standpoint that he thought that it was that it was referring to getting religious people uh, out of their private views out of the public mm-hmm. square, which exactly. of course it's not. It doesn't mean that at all. Right. It means as a function of government, you can't have. Why is this so you hard? You can't for force him? your beliefs on it. Yeah, I mean, and quite frankly, and listeners, you'll hear this in the interview with the former interviews with the former Mormons is I hope Mitt Romney believes that his religious beliefs don't um, should not affect his policy because there are some really awful beliefs of the Mormon church. Um, but you'll hear about those in a minute. Yeah, but Santorum was becoming apoplectic over the over or the nausea, I guess, rather, that yes. that the um, that religious people. I mean, this is part of his general theme. And you can see why he gets political mileage out of saying we're persecuted. They're, the seculars are trying to push their agenda and getting us to where we can't even, you know, mm-hmm. co- have comments in the public square. Right. Um, here's actually, um, in his own words, what Rick Santorum said on um, ABC News' This Week with George Stephanopoulos. I don't believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. The idea that that, uh, the, the church can have no influence or no involvement in the operation of the state is absolutely antithetical. To the, to the objectives and, and, and vision of our country. This is the First Amendment. The First Amendment says the free exercise of religion. That means bringing everybody, people of faith and no faith, into the public square. Kennedy, for the first time, articulated a vision saying, no, faith is not allowed in the public square. I will keep it separate. Go on and read the speech. I will have nothing to do with faith. I won't consult with people of faith. You bet that makes you throw up. What kind of country do we live in that says only people of non-faith can come in the public square and make their case? That makes me throw up, and it should make every American, and we're seeing from a president. Yeah, he, he, he did backtrack <laughs> after some pressure about the vomit part as being a little over the top, but he did never retracted the substance of his criticism. Which is interesting because that's actually the second time he made the comment about it making him want to throw up. This this statement that we just played from um, this week, the show this week, um, was in response to a speech he did 
where he said that he had read the text of Kennedy's speech and it made him want to throw up. I think the thing that fascinates many people, actually, it might get him some votes about the people that support him, is you you don't really you know where he stands on things. And in many of his speeches, he's Absolutely. very, very clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romney dances around a bit to where he can't be nailed down. But if you look at Santorum's record of speeches, he's he's very blunt and clear on that, and he never really retracts any of the major parts of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean that is the one thing he has going for him is I believe that Rick Santorum believes yep. everything he says. And and one last thing I want to point out about Rick Santorum's um, illness over Kennedy's speech about the separation of church and state is that Kennedy was defending Catholic politicians. Rick Santorum is a Catholic politician, (laughs) arguably without 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 people like Kennedy – uh, you know, even to this day, Catholics would struggle with the same accusations that, that Kennedy. I was playing in my mind the other day, what if Rick Santorum had a time machine and he could trans- transport himself back pre-Kennedy and he had to run for the office? Yeah. Uh, with his views and his track record, do you think, does anybody think that the Protestants in this country, even modern mm-hmm. ones, would have touched that guy with a 10-foot pole given his like, oh, the the, the Pope is infallible and right. and, uh, and church hierarchy, they know what they're doing. He That's the kind of Catholic that specifically wouldn't have been elected without the, the, the point work that Kennedy did. Exactly. Now, um, let's uh, move on just slightly to some more Santorum. It's um, not really moving on. But... Not really, but uh, let's get into some God Thinks Like You. I was listening to some of the other speeches he's recently made, and there's there was one that got a, a lot of uh, press because clearly, what, in this case, what he was probably doing was making he knows that he appeals more to working class, mm-hmm. uh, a blue collar type Republican voters. He's like the anti Romney in exactly. that respect. Who yes. you know, Romney appeals more to the to the upper crust. But he uh, was reacting. He was making some speeches in response to the president and the vice president's initiative to increase. Uh, spending on higher education, community right. colleges, and job training. It's an initiative to get people into college. So Obama made a remark to in regards that everybody, every American should have access to, to a, a, some type of higher education. Yeah. And so in reaction, Rick Santorum said this. It's no wonder President Obama wants every kid to go to college. <laughs> the indoctrination that occurs in American universities is one of the keys to the left holding and maintaining power in America. As you know, 62% of children who enter college with a faith conviction leave without it. Yeah, so, you know, on one level, politically, you can see why what maybe what Santorum is doing is trying to appeal to the disaffected Mm blue-collar conservative voters like the the Reagan Democrat types that feel that, uh, Obama's elitist, but you know he makes reference to specific studies and statistics yes. that you are that that somehow going to college is going to make you a turn your your nice church going Christian child into a radical liberal mm-hmm. you know flower person. But when you look at the studies that he cites on that, it's not just that he's misinterpreting; it's the opposite. And so when you look at the statistics, so he's just, I mean let's call it what it is. He's lying. 
Yeah. So yeah. if if you look at some of the studies that 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 he cites there, the one of the papers is uh, in the journal Social Forces. The the authors are Euchre, Regnerus, and Valor. It's called Losing My Religion. They looked, they crunched the data and found out that actually those students who go to college are more likely to maintain their religion and uh, their religious beliefs than students who don't, who just have a high school. Really? So, so people who don't go to college at all are more likely to change. D- does that mean become atheists, or does that just mean change no. their religion? Well, one thing is that that if you look just look at church going, of course it declines during that age, regardless because you're growing. There's a developmental period. You don't have your with, parents dragging you there parents. anymore. Yeah. And if you're at college, often students don't go to church simply because they're at college. They might not have. You know, and they can they, sleep in on Sundays. Why not? Yeah. Um, but uh, what the factors that people – this is a classic sort of correlation doesn't equal causation thing, and that is is that, um, is that many of the students who are on a college trajectory or beyond are the less religious to begin with. And that is right. the, you know, one of the big predictors of maintaining religion and, and going back to church in your mid to late 20s is marriage and childbearing. Mm-hmm. That, that is those people who get married younger and start have family younger tend to be more religious. So there is a correlation between colleges and non-religious student body. But it's not causation. No, it's just self-selection. Right. We tend to select peer groups, or in fact, what they found, like I mentioned, is the some of the data shows the opposite, and that is that those people who are religious and mm-hmm. go to colleges often maintain or even increase their religion because they sort of snowball into maybe joining a campus Christian group right. or having Christian peers, or they go to a religious school. Yeah, and so um, the uh, I, in fact, there's other studies that that show that that students who are at like a secular or state college who are religious become or maintain their religion more than religious people who go to religious colleges. Now, why would that wow. be? Because of think about the, it's the circling the wagons yeah. dissonance thing, and that is if you feel attack, if you're the lone Christian in your class mm-hmm. of a bunch of hippie liberals, that you solidify your views to some extent because you're forced to. F- focus on that. You're right. like the poster boy for Christianity. Whereas if you're at a Christian school, uh, that there's often a lot more debate about things re- because it's a com- more comfortable environment to, right. you know. We're all Christians mm-hmm. here. We can talk about this. We can have disagreements. Yeah. And so th- this fits in actually with, uh, and the other issue then is uh, social class. And this is, goes mm-hmm. back to what a lot of the, the political debates are about. There was actually a, um, you might be have heard of this. There was a book that, that came out recently that was important in sociological circles by Charles Murray. He's the guy who mm. did back a couple decades ago the bell curve. Oh, yeah. That was uh, so lambasted for having IQ mm-hmm. related to, you know, Race and things like that. But he writes about social class things where he – and in this case, he just stuck to white people because he's not touching the race (laughs) thing. But basically, his book is called Coming Apart where he argues that that society is bifurcating into – by along the lines of education Mm -hmm. and that upper – not just liberal conservative but more educated people tend to delay marriage. They tend to move to certain areas geographically. Have fewer children. Have fewer children and go to church more. Then mm. people who are blue collar, 
or, or don't have a college education who tend not to get married. And so if you look at the like the divorce rates or the marriage rates by not religion, but just socioeconomic status and education, yeah. there's where the big division is. So it's the people, in other words, this gels with that in that it's the people who don't go to college who often are lower on the SES scale, mm-hmm. who don't go to church and they're not as integrated in communal type things, including church, but also things like, you know, being uh, living in a stable neighborhoods, having mm-hmm. stable family structures, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not the, in other words, it's not the elite, educated, liberal people high in the food chain that churches need to worry about. Those people are actually well socialized into the ones right. who are, are who are religious are those who are religious are, are are likely to stay that way. Yeah. So yeah. it's not an education effect. It's a class mm-hmm. effect. Oh, more of that Marxist stuff. In fact, oh. what I did was just to see what and the other issue, though, that they talk about in some of these articles that he misquotes is that <laughs> There's this mistake that with the whole – his statements about like the liberal college professors, they're going to turn you on the road to Marxism. Frankly, in many cases – and this doesn't reflect well on people like me – that religion is often not even – those sorts of social issues are not addressed. Colleges are becoming just more tell me what I need to know to get a high-paying job instead of like they used to be in the 60s and 70s. Where you debate about things yeah. and, and you know go uh, have a joint with your prof at a party and talk about you know those sorts of things. Oh yeah, I miss those days. Yeah, uh, the, that actually a lot of the colleges are more going now towards pre-professional programs. Yeah, so like pre-nursing, pre-med, pre-occupational mm-hmm. therapy. The whatever, emphasis is business. on and, and you know I teach at an art school, so it's a little bit different because none of my students will ever have jobs. No, I can't. Um, but the emphasis is very much with higher education. What do I have to do to get a job? Yeah. So in fact, what I do is I, I, I keep data on these sorts of things. And I looked at by major, by, mm-hmm. by, by type of major in college, the religiosity scores of the students because they take a lot – in a lot of my studies, they take standard measures of how religious they are. And I found mm-hmm. out that sure enough that the one – and I looked at political you know, conservatism too, mm-hmm. but that the highest uh, scores on religious Religious fundamentalism were pre-professional students. So these are people not necessarily – and these are sometimes even sciences. That Mm -hmm. is pre-nursing, pharmacy, pre-occupational therapy, uh, recreation. And that business and and pre-professional programs were the highest. uh, And that uh, sure enough, social sciences and natural sciences were lower on that uh, and and humanities. Mm -hmm. But again, it wasn't this – when you have an education, I think that's more – Again, just utilitarian rather mm-hmm. than to explore the big ideas of Western civilization, but just I want a job. And that you don't get – you don't take the type of coursework or the professors don't really talk that much about let's challenge your worldview. That's right. not really a point of it, right. of the classes. But now is there any truth to the idea that colleges are staffed by – a bunch of liberal atheists, even if they're not talking about those subjects in their classes. If you were to take a poll of these professors, are you going to find uh, a majority of them or a large, a larger proportion than in the population at large are atheists or yep. liberal? Yeah. Yeah. 
You do. And, and uh, you know, with some exceptions, again, with things like not so much with things like business or, right. or, or again, some of the doctors and the, or the farmers. But really the social accounting. sciences. is Social again. sciences and humanity. And, and there's, you know, people have looked at this. In fact, if you recall the, some of the theories that I talked about before with social psychologists like Jonathan Haidt and his theories of morality and the different mm-hmm. dimensions, he had some flack recently for making speeches to conventions of social psychologists where he'll ask how many people here are conservative a Republican. He gets like a few hands yeah. and the hundreds of liberals. And he goes, this is why we don't understand the people uh, that we study is because we're different from the usual population. Mm. But he's gotten criticism because, well, one thing is, is that uh, in science, just because somebody has the political orientation, that doesn't automatically affect the study. Doesn't, I, I can't like change magically, the science. Yeah. I can't magically liberalize my results by... You mean the, if you're a liberal, that doesn't mean that global warming is going to be true just because you want it to be? As, as, as unfortunate as that mm. is to think about. But the other issue is that a lot of times, uh, if you look at the things that, that conservatives value... They don't want to be a college professor. Are you kidding? Right. We're shabby. We walk around with like you – know, we have a lot of education. Don't and get very paid enough. Money. We don't get paid a lot. We're not there, you know, masters of the universe making money. Yeah. So they, there They'd are, rather be Mitt Romney than Dr. Professor There Luke are Galen. stories within each – like in my graduate program, there were stories of the conservative guy who started out the program, yeah. found out what the salaries were going to be for uh, for people who work in psychology, and he quit. Right, right. And now he's probably – you know, I'll do his lawn someday. I was going to say. He's my kids will like will, – will serve his kids at Taco doing Bell. Doing much better than, than either of us will ever do. But so, uh, so there are liberal professors. But uh, again, it's probably it's not because um, the college keeps out the conservatives. It's because they that's not a culture that they really enjoy. Or they want yeah, to be in there. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously there are some exceptions, but right. why would you want to, you know? But then there's the process of like things like give and take, critical thinking, you know, uh, arguing about worldviews and things like that. It doesn't really. It's not conducive to in some cases to fundamentalists. They wouldn't want to be there. Absolutely, absolutely. And we and again, just back to Santorum's point, there's not there's isn't any evidence that that otherwise predisposed religious kids go off to college and come back, you know, on the on the whole change. In mm-hmm. fact, there's evidence of the opposite. Right. And, and we should point out, too, that Rick Santorum has three college degrees. Well, yeah, <laughs> just I, just throwing that out there. And Newt Gall- and what is Newt Gingrich's job? Wasn't Newt, he a yeah, history professor? That's right. A few episodes back, we mentioned on the show that we were interested in talking about Mormonism later on in the year. And immediately, um, a handful of people wrote to us saying, I'm a former Mormon. Um, If you're looking for someone to talk to about this, please let me know. I'd be happy to talk to you. So I took uh, several of these guys up on their offer. And yes, um, for this particular episode, it's just men. Sorry, it, it, it didn't work out schedule-wise with uh, the women who wrote in, but we do have a, a special episode coming up soon, but more on that later. Anyway, I spoke with these three men, Tom, Steve, and Scott, and started off by asking them to say how long they had been in the church and how they became a member of the church. Uh, my name, for purposes of this interview, is Tom, and uh, I have—I'm technically still a member of the church. I, although I no longer attend, 
and no longer consider myself of the Mormon faith. I have not officially had my name removed from the records yet, although I anticipate doing that in the near future. And so I have been a member of the Church for nearly 40 years. In, in terms of becoming a member of the LDS Church, uh, I was I was born into the Church. My parents are both Mormon, and in fact, my ancestors both go back. I have ancestors on both sides that go back to Joseph Smith's time that joined the Church during his era, that later crossed uh, the plains uh, with Brigham Young and uh, went to Utah. Uh, but for purposes of my, my personal background, I was born into the Church, and then um, from the Church's perspective, you become a member of the Church technically when you're baptized at the age of eight. And so uh, at that point, I officially became a member of the Church. So my name is Steve Corey, and I was a Mormon for, I guess, about 18 years. So I became a member of the Mormon Church because I was uh, born into a Mormon family. My parents <clears throat> were uh, converts, and then I was born into their family. So my name is Scott Martin. Um, I was a Mormon for about 40 years. Um, I uh, was actually born into the church, and uh, my, both my parents were converts in the church. And I grew up um, throughout you know, my entire life as a Mormon, all the way up until I left when I was just before I turned 40. Which was, not, not to date you too much, but how long have you been out? Uh, about three years. Next, I asked Tom, who happens to be a lawyer, I should point out, what led him out of the church? And he told me that it started out with a friend of his making a snide comment about Joseph Smith. He had mentioned in an offhanded way uh, that, that Joseph Smith wasn't a very good man, and I remember being a bit taken aback by that statement. Um, the LDS people obviously hold Joseph Smith in very high esteem. Um, obviously, they refer to him often as an example of, of righteousness and, and various virtues. And then also in an offhanded way, he mentioned that the Book of Abraham is a complete joke. And uh, just by way of a little bit of background, uh, the Book of Abraham is uh, a portion of uh, LDS scripture. Uh, basically, it arises uh, from a background standpoint. Uh, there was a point when Joseph Smith was in Kirtland, Ohio, there was a gentleman by the name of Michael Chandler who was touring the eastern United States. He had received, he had purchased several mummies and some papyrus documents and had sold a number of those off, but he went through Kirtland, Ohio, and he had these mummies and he had these papyrus documents, and Joseph Smith had some reputation as a translator, having supposedly translated the Book of Mormon from Golden Place, right. and this gentleman asked uh, Joseph Smith if, if he could uh, translate these papyrus documents. And Joseph Smith indicated joyfully that they were a record that uh, Abraham, from the Old Testament, that while he was in Egypt, he had written uh, these documents, and it provided an account of some of his early history, his view of the universe and uh, creation, some things like that. It's, it's a short book. It's about five chapters. And so anyway, that's that's part of the, the LDS scripture. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of shelved that. I didn't do much with it, but I remember a year or two later, uh, I had a light day at work, and for some reason, that memory, that thought had come back to me, and so I decided to, to look that up. And really, my purpose was to prove him wrong. I wasn't, I didn't have the mindset that 
what he said was true. I, my view has always been the truth is going to stand up to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. That, you know, when you research something and look at something closely, the truth is going to prevail. And so I decided to start doing some research on this book of Abraham. And, and of course, what I found uh, astonished me. I mean, there's just, there's no way to prop this book up or try and claim that it's inspired or, or real in any way. Uh, there's so much evidence against it. The, the papyrus documents that Joseph Smith translated uh, the book from, they were thought to be lost in a fire in Chicago initially. It was later found in the archives of another museum in New York. And at that point, I believe the church became somewhat excited. They thought, okay, this will demonstrate that Joseph Smith was illegitimate. And it became clear in translating these documents that nothing in them supported his position at all. They were essentially funeral documents. They were from a book of breathings, a book of the dead, uh, the facsimiles. There, there are some pictures in the book of Abraham that he basically goes through and talks about what each of the symbols represent. Uh, his representations of the facsimiles were off. And, and one thing you have to remember, at the time that Joseph Smith supposedly translated this, they had the Rosetta Stone, but they really didn't have uh, a good understanding of how to mm-hmm. translate Egyptian at that time. And so there really wasn't anybody to, to challenge him at that point. But many, many years later, they became much more uh, efficient, uh, much better at being able to translate the language. It, it became apparent that really this this didn't support his position at all. And, and I remember spending weeks going through apologist websites and, and you know, trying to come up with, with some kind of explanation for this. And uh, the apologists, I mean, they ranged, their excuses ranged across the board uh, that, that, you know, some of the scrolls hadn't been recovered and those were the ones that Joseph translated from uh. to my personal favorite was there was actually some kind of mnemonic uh, device of some kind. And, and that's where the translation came from. Uh, it just, none of it was credible to me. Right. Amazingly, although that really should have been enough by itself, I was able to shelve that for a time, mm. and I was able to rationalize and think, well, the, we don't rely on the Book of Abraham very much. Um, you know, it's not our, our prominent source of revelation. And so I, I was still able to shelve that for mm. a time. But then I turned my attention to the Book of Mormon, which is anybody who you know, even has a, a cursory knowledge of the Church, knows that that's the Church's primary uh, book, mm-hmm. that, that Joseph Smith had declared that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on the earth, and that it will draw someone closer to God than any other book. Uh, and so I turned my attention to the Book of Mormon, and I thought, okay, let me look at this and see if this is what they have claimed to be all along. And I spent weeks not only looking at different claims, but... I mean, one of the things that I'm used to doing as an attorney is, is tracking down sources, and so it's not enough for me to just have somebody say that this is the case. I would, you know, pin down the source and try and determine, you know, where it came from and be able to evaluate those sources and things like that. So I spent a long time, many, many months, uh, going over some of these things, and what I, I learned about the Book of Mormon, unfortunately, or actually, as my perspective is now, fortunately, right, I'm, I'm right. actually glad that I learned this, but mm-hmm. uh, at the time, deconstructing my faith was somewhat of a painful process. I, I, I learned tons of problems with the Book of Mormon, that it's just, it, it's, the evidence is so overwhelmingly against it 
that there's just no way that I could that I could credibly claim that there's any truth to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those problems are, for example, there's a lot of anachronisms right. in the book. It talks about horses and elephants and cattle, other animals that we just know weren't present during the alleged time period of the Book of Mormon, which would start somewhere around 600 B.C. to around a little after 400 A.D. Mm. And so... And takes place in North America, right? Well, apologists try and get around that. Mm. Uh, they they try and claim that it's not uh, that it's not clear exactly where it took place, but we know it was somewhere in the Americas, whether that be sure. North, Central, or South America. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people accept that a lot of it took place in North America, but again, just even to get around some of the apologists' claims, even if you're to consider all of the continents, you're still not going to get that support. Right, right. So you, you have you have the animals, you have the fact that, you know, allegedly they grew wheat, uh, and it's amazing how archaeologists, they some of the things that they can pin down, apparently, you know, from these crops, there's sediment, there's pollen that later... You know, they can trace and track, and they can pin down the fact that there's just absolutely no evidence to show that there was any wheat grown during that time period. Uh, They talk about chariots. They talk about steel. They talk about coins. They talk about things that just, there's just no evidence whatsoever to suggest that any of these things were in the Americas during that time period. It it sounds like Joseph Smith just kind of wrote about things he thought sounded neat. Yes, and, and things from his perspective, right. things that, as as somebody who was fairly uneducated, he, he wouldn't be able to know, he would have no idea that, that those things weren't in existence at that time. Right. Uh, moreover, I mean, they didn't even have some of the evidence to refute that until later, so people just weren't in a position at that time to be able to really challenge him on those things. There's there's mistranslations from the King James Bible that would suggest that he actually copied those from the King James Bible rather than from an ancient record, mm-hmm. as he suggested. Uh, there's linguistic problems. DNA was a big one. Uh, they've shown through DNA evidence. One of the claims of the Book of Mormon is that these civilizations, these people that were brought from Jerusalem over to the Americas, were the principal ancestors of the Native Americans. Right. And and going off of that claim that, that the Native Americans have descended from, from Hebrews, they've had, obviously, DNA evidence. Mm-hmm to be able to show that they actually had Asian origins that right. uh, that completely refute this idea. And in fact, one of the things that's most telling is that in the introduction to the Book of Mormon initially, it had stated that these Lamanites, the civilization that had mm-hmm. come through, were the principal ancestors of the American Indians, and quietly the Church tried to change that page without you know, making an announcement or anything later on when some of this came out, now it just reads they are among the ancestors wow. of the American Indians, and apologists are now moving with the idea that maybe there were other civilizations that were there that just, you know, the Lamanites got kind of subsumed into some of these other cultures. But the fact that they changed that language in the uh, introduction is, and, and were trying to be quiet about it, mm-hmm. that in and of itself is also a little bit telling. But it's it's more than clear from teachings of past leaders, that the understanding and the idea was that Native Americans were descendants of this this civilization. Right, absolutely. No matter how they're trying to distance themselves from that concept now. 
Steve also described the Hebrew origins of the Native Americans, according to the Mormon Church. So Lehi's family left. God commanded them to leave, take their history, and and go to the New World because everybody else was wicked. Right. And so Lehi's family came from Israel to the Americas, and there's there's much debate in Mormondom about where exactly they showed up in the Americas. Mm-hmm. But they did, and then so there were some sons of Lehi that um, one of them, whose name was Laman, I believe, mm-hmm. he turned wicked against Lehi, and so as a punishment, as God does, he turned him and his descendants' skin dark. And so their descendants are the Native American people. Right. So the Native American people were the descendants of the wicked son of Lehi. Is it true, too, that um, at least, um, I don't think currently, but um, previously the Mormon Church had the belief that the holier you were, the more righteous you were, the lighter your skin would be? What I do remember, and I remember this one fairly distinctly, is a lesson being taught by one of the, the church leaders that about how he had he had been to uh, a place in in South America and was was giving a lesson to the congregation there and he could see their skin uh, lightening before his eyes mm-hmm. as they would listen to him speak and uh, and receive the teachings and the belief in in the Mormon Church that they were being taught and um, the 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 phrase in the Book of Mormon, which has since been changed, the phrase was originally uh, they were white and delightsome. There's, the people were white and delightsome, but it has since been changed to I think pure and delightsome. Uh, so instead of being white, they were now pure. They're good about going in and making those very subtle but fairly significant edits. Oh yes, they are. Of course, the Mormon Church doesn't just carry some racist baggage with Native Americans, but uh, there's another group that, pardon the expression, they've had to whitewash their history with a bit recently. Here's Scott to explain. Uh, you know, there was recently a, um, a a bit of a controversy over the Mormon position with um, with blacks in the church, mm-hmm. and uh, the Mormon Church just just like last week, I think it was, put out a press release basically saying, you know, yes, you know, that was in the past, it's been put behind us, you know, we, we have no idea why uh, blacks didn't have the priesthood and weren't allowed to have, you know, the highest level of Mormon um, association, and we don't know why that was, but what we do know is that everything is all hokey-dory and we're all um, non-racists now. And that, you know, that is actually pretty... Um, Duplicitous. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a lie in my mind because we absolutely do know why um, we we didn't allow blacks to have the priesthood because we um, have statements from prophets over and over and over again in the Mormon Church. Who again, prophets are um, speaking for God, and, and mm-hmm. according to Mormon theology, they you know they speak for God. And those prophets have told us many many times why blacks didn't have the priesthood. It was because they were. Um, many reasons. I mean, they were, they were less valiant in the pre-existence before they came to Earth. Um, that they weren't. Um, Brigham Young said that. Uh, well, Brigham Young was one of the early prophets in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that you know black people would never have the priesthood because they just weren't worthy for it. 
Um, he also was a huge um, anti-miscegenation person. He right. said that you know anyone who married a black person should be killed on the spot. Um, so you know the church has this history, which they have many, many, many statements from prophets mm-hmm. talking about why blacks shouldn't have the priesthood and why blacks are less worthy than whites in those ways. But they want to be able to just kind of forget all those things and brush them all under the rug, so to speak, um, and kind of have their cake and eat it too, because what they want Mormons to do is believe that their current prophets are always speaking for God, but their old prophets might not have always been speaking for God. Maybe (laughs) they were just speaking for themselves, or maybe they were just bigots and were speaking something off the cuff. Um, But I kind of feel like Mormons need to own up to one or the other. They either need to admit that their prophets basically, you know, are just as likely to be wrong as anyone else, Mm -hmm. Um, or they need to own up to the fact that their prophets said all these things over and over and over again for many, many years in the Church. They're in a little bit of a catch-22, because on the one hand, if they come out and uh, repudiate their, their prior history... And, and, you know, acknowledge that that was bad and that was wrong. The problem that they face is within the LDS Church, the, the general authorities, the, the, the high leadership of the Church, faithfulness and, and loyalty and obedience to them is, is considered, you know, one of the, the preeminent virtues. They, there was a talk by one of the uh, ordained apostles, Dallin Oaks, who once said that if, even if we're wrong, you're going to be blessed for following what we do. And so they've created this system in which you don't challenge the leadership, that it, what they it's say It's a brilliant goes. way of doing it. And, and, and even if they're wrong, you're, you're going to be blessed. So it doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. And so if, if they come in and say, we repudiate this racist history, and, and we were wrong, and this policy was wrong, they open the door to challenging and criticizing the leaders, which is something they don't want. That that doesn't go with the structure, and so they want to avoid that. But then on the other hand, if they come out and and support their prior history, then they have to acknowledge that their God is racist. Tom went on to explain that there are many aspects of Mormon history that have been glossed over by the Church, including uh, some of the personal history of founder Joseph Smith. Now, beyond the arrests for fraud and so forth that we've discussed before on the show, Tom talked about um, some of the other interesting facts about Joseph Smith that you're not likely to hear at Temple. With respect to Joseph Smith's character, uh, there are suggestions that, that polygamy was involved, although really the Church somewhat emphasizes the fact that that was really more during Brigham Young's period. Right. I still think there are members of the Church who aren't fully aware that Joseph Smith had many, many wives in his lifetime before mm-hmm. he died. Um, in fact, we know the count is well over 30, and wow. some of the troubling components, I mean, just in and of itself, obviously, polygamy is something that troubles most rational people. Right. Uh, but with regard to some of the, spe- the specifics that are really troubling, uh, several of his wives were underage. Mm-hmm. Several of his wives were actually married to other men at the time, so that was actually polyandry as wow. opposed to just that's polygamy. A, that's a very different thing, and that, that would certainly um, change a lot of people's minds, I think, within the Mormon Church. First of all, I never, ever heard even a hint of that anywhere from any kind of church publication or, or at a church meeting, and I have yet to hear an apologist really even provide 
even a halfway credible explanation for why that would be okay. So I, I know personally from having dealt with, you know, some other uh, people that, that have struggled with LDS theology that that's a big one, that the polyandry is one that people really, really struggle with because there's just no good explanation for it, regardless of how you try and frame it or what context you put it in. Right. So... But that's something that doesn't come up in church history. In fact, if you look through most of the Sunday school manuals and most of the references to Joseph in any of the church publications, they really only refer to his first and primary wife, Emma. They really don't make references to his other wives, almost kind of creating this impression that, you know, he just had this this one wife and, and that they were crazy about each other, and uh, when in fact... There's a lot of evidence to suggest they had a very, very troubled marriage, uh, in large part due to the polygamy and polyandry, and let's face it, just flat-out adultery. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I would say that that portion is whitewashed. Another aspect of Mormonism that's been making headlines recently is this idea of the proxy baptisms, or baptisms for the dead. Steve actually took part in these baptisms, and so he told me a little bit about what the ritual itself was like. In the theology, it it says that um, the people who were not able to receive the Mormon Church here on Earth, mm-hmm. which is why they send out the missionaries to convert people on Earth, right. if you didn't get the opportunity to uh, receive the the Mormon gospel from the missionaries, then you can be baptized after you're dead. So that and, that includes people who were born before Joseph Smith found his magic tablets, and it yes. includes people who simply weren't were never brought the message. Right. So it could be someone who died today or someone who died four hundred years ago. Yes. Okay. And so this is also why the Mormon Church places a big emphasis on genealogy mm-hmm. and finding out who your ancestors are so they can keep track of all these people who uh, lived and died before they were baptized. It, Once it, they have the, the big list of all these names of people who were not baptized, then they get people like me mm-hmm. and it's a, a youth group get together a group of the young people in the church so when you do the baptisms for the dead, you go to the Mormon temple, and normally you can't go to the temple unless you've got a temple recommend, which you don't get until you are about 18 if you're a man and just before you go on a mission, mm-hmm. or if you're a woman, then just before you get married. But for the baptisms for the dead with the youth groups, they take you in a different entrance into the temple, into the baptismal font. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get uh, dressed in all white, uh, a kind of an all white jumpsuit. They lead you into the baptismal font, which is a kind of a almost a, a big hot tub arrayed on the back of twelve oxen statues. Wow! And then they've got a, a a man, a temple worker, sitting there at a computer terminal, so he can keep track of the names that you are being baptized for. Right. And then you've got a man with you in the baptismal font. He will be doing the dunking, mm-hmm. and then there's you. And then uh, Mormon baptism, you have to be completely submerged, all wet. Right. So, and then they start 
doing the baptisms, and it's pretty mechanical and rote and fast because they're trying to get through a bunch. Right. I think each person does about 30 at a time, and they just kind of really quickly say, your name, I baptize you in the name of this other name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen, and then dunk you down, bring you up, and do the next one. So you're just, you're dunking up and down 30 times. Right, yes. Wow. And, and you don't have to have any special standing within the church because you were, how old were you when you were doing this? I would guess around, I don't know, 14, 15, 16. Oh, so you're a, you're a kid. You're yeah. not, you're not even a, a full member yet. You haven't hit 18. You haven't done your mission work. Um, you're just basically a warm body that they can use for these baptisms. Uh, yes. Is there any kind of restrictions for that? Can can women do it? Um, can younger children do it? I remember. I think right. we had a group of uh, of young women with us when we did it. But um, you have to have an interview with your Mormon bishop. Mm-hmm. The bishop determines that you are worthy. You're not doing anything majorly sinful, and then you can go do this baptism. Steve left the church around the age of 18, but had he stayed in a little bit longer, he would have gone on to do mission work like Scott did. At uh, 19, I served for two years, and um, as an Australian who was in the church, because I was still in Australia at the time, um, uh, I was a little disappointed because I actually went to another place in Australia. So I oh, went no. from one side of Australia to the other. Well, that's a bummer. Um, but yeah, I served two years as a missionary in Australia. Um, Australia is a tough place for um, Mormon missionaries. Um, is there a large Mormon little, population there? It's it's reasonably s- small. It's uh-huh. not a major um, factor in Australia, um, okay. but there's enough. Um, yeah. You know, in my hometown, which is about almost a million people, um, there's probably thirty or forty different congregations. In it. Oh wow! So it's, okay. it's a good size. Yeah. So you went to the other side of Australia. You didn't get to go to any exotic far-off land, although to no, me... No, which was very disappointing. Yeah, Australia sounds pretty nice to me. I'd like to, I'd like to go there for a couple <laughs> exactly. of years. But, uh, and you did your mission work. How many converts did you get in your, in your tenure? So I actually had three converts. Um, one, of, uh, one of them was actually just a, a child of a family that had been inactive, what they call inactive in the church, okay. which means that they're no longer attending, but they wanted to come back. Mm-hmm. And so in the Mormon church, generally children are baptized at eight years old. Right. And so she was, I think, ten years old at the time, and she hadn't been baptized. So we considered that as a convert conversion, even though it really kind of wasn't it, it was an easy much of a conversion yeah. as some others would be. Right, right. And then uh, the two other conversions we had were both um, single mothers. Um, mm. So they were people who were honestly having a lot of challenges in their lives. They had both had small children um, and were looking for that support and community that the church could bring. And I think that was what originally attracted to them. And then, of course, as we taught them, they um, began to believe and, and started attending, and we were able to convert them during that time. Interesting. And obviously when Mormon... Um, missionaries go to third world countries and so forth. It's it's a bit of a different story. But what is it like to be evangelizing in a in a first world country? Are you doing the um, white shirt, black tie, door to door ringing? Absolutely. And what is that? Yeah, like? and in fact, um, evangelizing in a first world country is is, is um, 
kind of boring. Uh, you spend a <laughs> lot of time knocking on doors. I mean, yeah. we knocked on doors over and over again, uh, white shirts, black ties, the whole deal, um, riding our bikes around, um, tracting out what we call tracting um, mm-hmm. every single house in an area. Um, for about eight months of my mission, I was in one small mining town in the middle of Australia. Wow. And uh, I knocked on every single door. And I'm not exaggerating. I knocked on every single door in that town three times in that eight months. Wow. And, uh, it's, there's not a lot of success. You don't get to teach a lot of people, um, but you just do what you can. The couple of people you did convert were some of the doors you knocked on. Absolutely, yeah. We So we knocked on their door and uh, talked to them and uh, got invited in to at least give out what we call our first discussion. And mm-hmm. uh, usually that first discussion covers um, the real basic philosophy or theology of the church, or what they call the plan of salvation, um, which is basically, you know, where we came from before we lived on this earth, why we're here and where we're going after we die. Mm-hmm. And so you teach that first discussion and then hopefully um, pique people's interest enough to get a, a call back for a second uh, discussion. Right. How, how many of those first discussions were you able to have, and then how many of the second discussions did you get? We would probably teach a first discussion, I don't know, maybe three or four times a week um, during that time. I mean, you'd get people who'd be at least curious or interested. Mm-hmm. Getting that second discussion is always a little bit more challenging, because you'd get people who'd be interested to just talk to these Mormon missionaries and right. find out what they're doing. Yeah. But in order to get them to commit to a longer session of lessons, of course, that means um, they have to be a little bit more interested rather than just curiosity. So, you know, quite a few first discussions, but then second, third, fourth is a lot longer. And honestly, the thing that's kind of funny about it is that we were encouraged to invite people to be baptized on that second discussion. Wow. If we came back for that second discussion, even if we did, we very rarely got a third or a fourth because Mm -hmm. we were sitting there telling them that they needed to be baptized on that second time we'd even met the people. And so that usually shocked people enough that they weren't interested in seeing us anymore. Yeah, that that is a, a big step in your second discussion. But, of course, it's it's good for the church because once they're baptized, you can add them to the, the list of of members. Oh, absolutely. And and the, I think the feeling is, is that even if they're just kind of taking a leap of faith, even if they're just not really sure about the church or whatever else, if you can get them baptized, if you can get them in, and mm. then they're philosophy would be that, of course, then the Spirit can work on them, that they can have the benefits that, the, the, you know, having the Holy Ghost with them would give them, and um, they can then, of course, start building their testimony after they're baptized. But, you know, getting them baptized is is a priority, absolutely, and it's something that happens very, very quickly if you can during that process. It seems like that the whole process of the, the mission work must be very difficult and disheartening, because 90% of the doors you knock on are, is going to be people who don't want to talk to you and who are yes. aggressively so, I would imagine, in a lot of cases. How do you, <laughs> yes. how do you keep doing this for two years? Keeping, keeping up uh, uh, your, uh, your uh, morale and everything else as you're trying to do that for two years is very, very tricky. Um, you do. You, 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 one of the things that helps, of course, is you're always in a pair, so you're always right. um, paired up with somebody else. Um, so you are never separated. You're always together. Um, the only time you're ever separated is if you're in the shower, basically, and uh, or using the bathroom. Wow. Otherwise, you're together all the time. So you have that built-in support mechanism, which is um, a companion. Mm-hmm. And, of course, hopefully, you know, if one of you is in a depressed and discouraged mood, then the other one's there to, to buoy you up and keep you going. But, honestly, you're taught that 
what you're doing is God's will, right? It's God's work. It's it's so critical and important. You're saving souls. Um, you're keeping people from um, you know eternal punishment, and you're keeping pe- you're trying to teach people what can give them eternal happiness. And and when you've bought into that, and you really believe that, um, you you understand that a lot of people are going to reject that. But you're you're seeking for those you know pearls in the in the rough, and trying to find those people who are prepared by God to to accept the church and. And, uh, you know, just that little bit of success every so often can be enough to just keep you going and to keep you excited about what you're doing because you're doing God's work. Of course, the goal of the mission work is not only to bring more people into the Mormon church, but it's to increase your standing in the church so that when you die, you can achieve not just heaven, but the highest level of heaven. Scott explains a little bit more about the stratified afterlife of Mormonism. Yeah, so Mormons will believe that there's a celestial kingdom, which is the highest level, mm-hmm. and that's basically where um, good-believing Mormons go. And within the celestial kingdom, there are multiple levels as well. So the highest level of the celestial kingdom is where you go if you're a good Mormon who also was um, married mm-hmm. celestially, so you're sealed in an eternal marriage with a with a, a partner, right. um, you know, obviously in the Mormon Church it has to be a man and a woman because of that's course. a big issue. Um, or still, even today, actually, it could be a man and a woman and a woman in the temple, but that's another another question for another time. <laughs> right. um, and then uh, you basically are going to become um, uh, similar to our Heavenly Father, similar to God. So one day you'll be able to become like God and to have your own children and populate your own worlds, um, and that's that highest level of the celestial kingdom. Right. Um, the other levels of the celestial kingdom are basically for good Mormons who don't quite get to that level, so they might end up being um, servants or um, valets of some sort to those who are at the top level of the celestial kingdom, but at least they're in that highest level of heaven. So these are and, these are like Mormons who didn't get married, or... Yes. Okay. So if, exactly. So, for example, for some reason you don't get married, that would be one reason why... Um, it used to be taught, and this is, you know, looking at old Mormon theology, mm-hmm. it used to be taught that if you were um, a black person and you um, were worthy Mormon and you got to the, the, the to that highest level of heaven, then you would be a servant in the celestial kingdom to those who um, managed to go through all the way. So, yeah, so, and then there's two other levels of heaven. So, of course, there's the um, celestial and the terrestrial kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, the celestial is the lowest kingdom, and that's basically where... Um, there's the murderers and the liars and the rapists and all the horrible people end up going there. Oh. Um, and honestly, I think this is a, almost a, a step up from traditional Christianity, which believed that people would burn in a lake of fire and brimstone right, for right. eternity. It sounds like um, a much nicer um, hell to be damned to. I- exactly. It's not that bad. In fact, um, under Mormon theology, that's where I would go now as an apostate. Hmm. Um, and it actually doesn't sound all that bad. So um, so it's, it's not a place of torture necessarily? No, not at all. In fact, um, Joseph Smith was quoted as saying that if you could see the celestial kingdom, that lowest level of uh, heaven, um, you would see that it was so glorious that you'd want to kill yourself to get there. Wow. Um, so, you know, I think that is a progressive thing that in Mormon theology, at least a little bit, that most, you know, people aren't going to be burning in eternal torment in that way um, that a lot of other Christian beliefs believe wow. or theologies believe. Um, and then, of course, you have in the middle the um, terrestrial kingdom, which is 
where Mormons believe that good people who aren't Mormons go. So this would be where, you know, good people of all different Christian faiths, for example, or even good Buddhists or good whatever religion you are, if you're a good person, um, you would get to that terrestrial kingdom, which is that central middle um, heaven, basically. Of course, the depiction of the afterlife isn't the only way in which Mormonism differs from, say, mainline Christianity. There are a few other aspects that uh, Steve told me about. So, back in uh, the uh, what the Mormons call the pre-existence, that's before before we, we came down to be people, there was a big war in heaven. Uh, there, there's God, and then his children, which included Jesus and Satan, and you and me, incidentally. Right. So, God needed, a, needed to go... Uh, Everybody, I forget why everybody needed to have a body, but everybody had to go down, be born, live, die. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were there were two plans for that proposed: one from Jesus and one from Satan. Satan's plan was, yes, I will um, take care of everyone and force everyone to be good. And then Jesus's plan was, nope, I will let everybody go down there and they can choose to be what they want to be. So Jesus' plan was the free will plan, and Satan's plan was that I will force everyone to be good. Right. And so there's a big war in heaven against those two factions, and uh, Satan lost and was uh, cast out Mm. to outer darkness. Mm. So Jesus won out, so that's why we all have free will. Um, Another interesting thing about Mormonism is the idea of blood atonement. Yes. And that's one of those things that was rarely talked about. So I'm, I'm not sure if I, I get this all right, but it has to do with you can't, for certain sins, you can't just be punished or jailed or, or I, I guess, executed by hanging. Mm-hmm. You have to actually have your blood spilled in order to atone for that sin. The number one thing that our listeners wanted to ask about was, not surprisingly, magical underwear. Yes, the magical underwear. So that I, I, I never got my set of. Oh, of that's Jesus, too bad. Jesus jammies, as they <laughs> call them. <laughs> but um, I, I've I've seen my parents and my parents' set. I, I never saw them in them because they, you know, they're underwear. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Tom explained why the magical underwear is so important. Not everyone, you see, is allowed inside the temple. You have to take special ordinances. Uh, and one of the things that uh, people are involved in as, as part of these ordinances is they receive what are called garments. And uh, these garments are what people refer to as the magic underwear. Right. And essentially what these uh, garments are on, on many different levels, they're, they're supposed to be a symbol uh, and a reminder of promises that you made in the temple. In other words, you know, as you get dressed, you know, different things like that, it, it's, a, it's a reminder that's always with you of these promises that, that you've made in the temple. They're supposed to be reminding you of those things. Uh, it's, it, I think it's intended to serve a number of purposes. One would be uh, modesty. Uh, the Church is very big on modesty, mm-hmm. and one of the things, one of the focus uh, for the garments is that... Uh, you know, you're supposed to keep those garments covered, and so obviously that limits the type of clothing that you wear, uh, because the garments, for example, go down, you know, about halfway down your upper arm, tank tops, 
you know, obviously aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, your shorts need to go past uh, the length of the, the bottoms, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So I think modesty is another one of the intended purposes. Um, and while it's not official church doctrine, there is some understanding if you look at some past teachings and, and what some people believe, they, they do believe that these garments afford at least some degree of protection, that if you, you know, wear these garments, uh, that, that you are afforded, you know, some degree of physical or, or spiritual protection. Mm-hmm. And so, essentially, that's, that's what the, the garment or the, the magic underwear is. Here's Scott explaining, along with the magical underwear, some of the other rites and rituals that you have to go through in order to gain access to the temple to become a full member of the church. You actually do a number of different um, ceremonies in the temple. So um, one of the things you will do um, is what's called a washing and anointing, where they basically ritually wash you um, and give you blessings. Um, they you know, pronounce certain blessings upon you know, different parts of your body, um, that you'll be healthy. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a little bit different, but uh, is this you know, basically... The ritual of of the anointing of oils on the genitals by old people comes in. Is, is <laughs> that a real exactly thing? That's exactly what happens. Okay. Yes. And that's changed now. So they actually now they basically just put their hands on your head and give you all these blessings. But when I went through, this was pre nineteen ninety, so yes. they made a number of changes in nineteen ninety. Um, they would give they would, you would strip down naked, and they would give you this sheet that basically hang down the front and hang down the back, kind of like a poncho almost, but uh-huh. it was open on the sides. Right. And then as they're blessing you for each different part of your body, they would um, anoint your body with that part with the oil, and they would give you the blessing. So, you know, they might touch your chest and, you know, bless your heart, and then they might touch your head. And one of the things they do do is touch your loins. But they don't actually touch, you know, the actual genitals, but okay. they touch very, very close. And uh, that was kind of an uncomfortable moment in the process. I but, can uh, only imagine, especially as a, a young man with uh, standing there mostly naked and having... Um, older, all men, right? Women aren't involved yeah. in this process. So the women, the women will do that for the women. Right. The women go through that same process, and then men will go do it for the men. Well, at least that way it's pure, and nothing, nothing creepy is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you would hope so. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So they, yeah. they touch each part of your body with oil. Okay, so a lot yeah. of rituals here. Yeah, there is. And then that ritual is the one where you also get your, what they call the garments of the Holy Priesthood. So that's where you get your, what most many people outside of the Mormon Church will call the magic underwear, right? Right. So that's where, at the end of that process of getting those blessings, then they give you your um, garments, which is what Mormons will call those. Um, And that's special underwear, basically, that you are required to wear for the rest of your life um, at all times. Um, that will help remind you of those promises and those blessings that you've received in the temple. Mm-hmm. So does someone like Mitt Romney wear his magical underwear all the time? Oh, yes, absolutely, he would. Wow. Um, because if he's, a, if, he's a, um, if he's been through the temple, then he's required to do that. And, and in order to maintain his, um, what they call temple worthiness, but in other words, his you know, good standing in the church, yeah, he would be required to wear those at all times. And so any Mormon that you meet that is, you know, has been through the temple that's an active and believing Mormon mm-hmm. would be wearing those temple garments. All right. So now after you get your Jesus jammies, yep. um, then what? What comes next? So, so then you'll go through what they call the endowment session. And the endowment session is um, 
basically somewhere where you it's a big long ceremony there's a there's um you sit in almost like a theater a uh, movie theater and there's actually part of it that's projected as a movie in the front of the screen uh, front of the room mm. and you're going to take out um a number of different things one of the things you're going to do is you're going to learn uh, what they call signs and tokens that allow you to get past the angels that stand as at central um outside of heaven so it, when you're try you know when you die and you're you're trying to go to heaven and you're being judged and everything else one part of that according to Mormon theology, is that there'll be angels there that will will basically check these um, signs and tokens to make sure that you know the things that you need to know to pass by. In other mm. words, it's kind of like a, a secret handshake or a secret sign that says, this is what you needed to know to get past me. Right. And Mormons believe that in order to get into that highest level of, of heaven, you need to have those signs and tokens. So that's what you're basically what you're doing in the temple, is you're learning... Um, those signs and tokens to get past the angels so that you can get to that highest level of the celestial kingdom. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things you're doing. Uh, another thing that's happening in that, in that endowment session, that's that big session that you're in, is you're um, learning um, about uh, kind of the creation of the world and how it occurred and, and what happened. Another thing you're doing is you're being sealed as, to become a king or a queen or a priest or a priestess unto the Most High God to rule in a house of Israel forever. So basically you're being sealed up um, to become like God um, in that way. Mm -hmm. And then the, third, the fourth thing that you're doing is you're, you're making certain oaths. So you're making these oaths in the temple that you promise that you will do certain things, um, and those oaths are backed up pretty pretty um, substantially by some pretty pretty strong language. But basically what you're doing is you're promising that you will um, uh, do these things. And those oaths are the things that I think I'm most concerned about when I think about someone like uh, Mitt Romney being uh, the President of the United States. Yeah, can you uh, um, tell us what the, there's five oaths, correct? That's right. And um, it, it, thankfully you sent in these oaths uh, to me, so I have them in front of me. But it's really um, three of them that are the most troublesome. Yeah, exactly. So one of the oaths, for example, is that he promises that he'll live the law of chastity. Well, I don't think, you know, that concerns me too much as a, as a president of the United States, exactly. that he's going to be faithful to his wife. Right. I mean, that's fine. Um, but the ones that are the biggest um, concern would be the first oath that he, he makes, actually, in the temple is that he promises to obey the law of God and keep his commandments, mm -hmm. which may not sound too scary, but right. when it's combined with some of the other oaths, it becomes a little bit more scary. Um, the second promise is to is the law of sacrifice, what they call the promise of sacrifice, and he promises to sacrifice all that he possesses, even his own life, um, in sustaining and defending the kingdom of God. And of course, to a Mormon, the kingdom of God is the Mormon Church. Right. So what that basically means is is that no matter what, you 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 promise that you will um, give everything you have. You would even sacrifice your own life to further the aims of the Mormon Church. Right. Which is and then the. Oh, yeah. Well, historically, when you look at JFK, when he was first running for president and he came under a lot of fire because a lot of his critics said, well, he's a Catholic. He's just going to listen to the Pope. He doesn't – he's not going to listen to um, the American people. His first duty is to the Pope and he famously said, no, of course, my first duty is to the American public. Rick Santorum recently said that idea makes him want to vomit. But what you're saying <laughs> is that – um, a, a Mormon makes this vow that their first duty is to serve the Mormon Church. Absolutely, and then the third 
third oath is makes it even worse or even more concerning. So the third one is called the law of consecration. And the law of consecration means that um, you give everything you have, including all of your time, mm-hmm. all of your talents, all of your money, uh, to the Mormon Church and to the furthering of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which, of course, is the official name of the Mormon Church, mm-hmm. and for the building up of the kingdom of God on the earth and for the establishment of Zion. Wow. So what that means is is that Mitt Romney has promised to obey, to um, sacrifice everything he has for the Mormon Church, and to have his primary responsibility in life to further the Mormon Church. Right. And he'll give all of his money, which is one thing, but also his Which is a lot of money. Talent. I mean, let's not, uh, let's not discount that. That is a lot exactly. of money. <laughs> so, I mean, if he takes that seriously, and this is really the question, right? right. So if he takes those oaths seriously and literally... Mm-hmm then what he's basically done is promised to obey the Mormon Church. And, and of course, in the Mormon Church, you do believe that the prophet um, speaks with God and speaks for God mm-hmm. um, and you know reveals God's will on the earth. And so you will basically do everything you can to make sure that the Church's aims are fulfilled, that they're pushed forward, that the Church succeeds, and um, that you, you know, the kingdom of God can be set up on earth and there can be an establishment of Zion. Um, so really the question that I would love to see somebody ask Mitt Romney is to name those those oaths, talk about the fact that he has made those oaths, and, mm-hmm. and consecrate himself to church as his primary responsibility, and ask him if he takes those seriously. Does he take those literally, or does he just take those as kind of a figurative um, oath? Um, right. And I think that would be very interesting to hear what he would have to say on that. Well, and of course, if he does take them seriously, because he um, took these oaths before 1990, there's another wrinkle to it, um, including the fact that he promises to ritually kill himself if he breaks any of these promises. That's correct. So during that during the ceremony, you learn those signs and tokens, and you learn all these, you make all these oaths, and and part of that backing for all those things is that you um, did prior to 1990 promise to ritually kill yourself in a number of different ways. Um, <laughs> which was kind of a shock to me when I went through the temple the first time. But, uh, uh, you promised to, uh, for example, if you break, if you reveal one of the, um, the the tokens and signs in the temple, then you promise to uh, ritually disembowel yourself, for example. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty serious, and, uh, and Mormons do take these things seriously. Um, you know, you talk about the Catholic Church and uh, Kennedy, and. You know, you think about how that was an issue for um, you know the, the, the United States at the time, concerned mm-hmm. about Kennedy taking um, the, the words of the Pope as seriously. But then you also look at what today, for example, I look at the uh, the recent survey that has came out about contraception, mm-hmm. which is obviously in the news right now with uh, contraception in the Catholic Church yes. and, and um, Obama and all these other things. Um, something ridiculous like 98% of Catholic women have used contraception in their life. Right. Um, so obviously Catholics are not taking the word of, of the Pope too seriously at this point, if 98% of women are, are using contraception. Absolutely. Um, but in the Mormon Church, you know, I, it would never get to that level. Um, you have, so uh, something similar, for example, in the Mormon Church is, you know, we should avoid um, alcohol and tobacco mm-hmm. and coffee, for example. And, uh, you know, it's obviously not going to be 100% of temple Mormons would be keeping that, but I would guarantee you that the vast majority of them would be keeping those, those oaths and, co- and right. commandments. That Certainly given. more of them than, than the number of Catholic women who use contraceptives. Exactly. Yeah. And so Mormons take the prophet very seriously. I mean, they, they 
consider what when he stands up and he says something, um, they consider that the word of God. And and you know, even to a ridiculous level in my mind, um, for example, um, a number of years back, the prophet of the church stood up in in the general conference, which is the big you know, meeting of all Mormons, it's televised all around the world, and told uh, Mormon women that um, they shouldn't have more than one earring in each ear. Um, that more than one earring in each ear was just not good, and that and that women should never have more than one earring in, in each ear. And I know a number of women who, at that moment, took out those second and third earrings that wow. they had in their ears and never wore a second or third earring again. And um, my wife, when we finally left the church, that was one of her big... It was like almost a moment of rebellion for her when she put in a second earring in her left ear. Um <laughs> And I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but that's the level that Mormons listen to their prophet, right? Yeah. And uh, even about something as simple and and um, seemingly inessential as that. Um, so when you get to things that are even more important, like um, the Church's stand on homosexuality, for example, mm-hmm. then you have um, the ability for the Church to make major um, major pressure on their members to do things that they might not agree with. I know a number of members who feel like gay marriage is absolutely fine, but they gave time and money to help support Prop 8 in California, and uh, even though that was kind of went against their own personal right. uh, moral values. And that's what makes you worry about someone like Mitt Romney. Um, is he going to um, put what coming out of Salt Lake ahead of his own personal values, just like so many other Mormons I know did on things like gay marriage? I think the average Mormon person is a good person, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the problem is is that most Mormons don't even try and dig into a lot of the stuff themselves because they're, every time they do, it makes them feel uncomfortable, and that cognitive dissonance um, dives up, starts growing, and they, they try and avoid it and put it on their shelf. And That's what I tried to do for 10 years, couldn't mm-hmm. keep doing it. I know a lot of other members of the church who can't do it either, but there's still a lot of members who are good people every day trying to just live a good life, but... They need to deal with some of these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mormons, just like people of any other faith, are able to be good people despite their religion rather than because of it. Absolutely. Thanks once again to Tom, Steve, and Scott. We greatly appreciate them sharing their time and their stories with us. And, just so you know, we have not forgotten about the ladies. We have a special episode that will be coming out soon with an extended interview with a former Mormon woman who is now a skeptical blogger and a professional dominatrix. It is a fascinating story, so stay tuned for that. It will be available in the feed very soon. Let's end here today with some quick props and shit list. And we have choice morsels of both kinds. Yes, we do. Um, Starting off with the shit list, um, well, since we've talked about Mormonism and we've talked about Catholicism, let's talk about Islam for a moment. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Zombie Mohammed. You heard about this, I take it? Yes, I saw the footage. Did you? Yeah. This happened um, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, last fall in as part of a Halloween uh, parade. And a group, an atheist group there was walking in the Halloween parade. There was one dressed up as a zombie pope and one guy dressed up as a zombie well, Mohammed. How, how could you tell the difference between that and the real pope? Yeah, well, <laughs> good question. 
They, uh, look, they look similar the, if you look the at The zombie pope wasn't actually <laughs> um, eating the flesh of the young. But the zombie Muhammad was assaulted by a Muslim man as and he walked can, down the street. You can see the video that they that the atheist took of the thing. It's mm-hmm. unclear. The assault was somewhat off camera, but you can hear it yes. where he was... Grabbed him by the back of the neck. He was grabbed and then choked a little bit and then he was yelling for them to get off him and then there was some uh, following down the street apparently of, of there and they had to try yep. to attract the law enforcement. Elements. Yes, exactly. And they spoke to a police officer. The Muslim man was charged with assault and a court date was set. When they went to court, uh, Mechanicsburg District Judge Mark Martin threw it out. Yes, it's if you go and read his comments, it's just sort of jaw dropping. Where he's like, "Yes, this isn't First Amendment though, because you were you were inciting uh, by yes. by by using the religious angle." And he, the judge, apparently was like a former troop who had served overseas in in Muslim countries, and yes. was said they get you know basically he was saying they get really sensitive about this sort of thing, so you can't say it, or that you had it coming to exactly. them, you incited them. Exactly, and, and he said in court that in other countries you'd have been executed for this. So apparently, <laughs> the, the, the First Amendment doesn't now and now it does not apply if you irritate people, or if, or if the law is different in other countries, then we're beholden in this country to the laws of those other countries where you you can't do these. Now things. it's I'm no lawyer, maybe some of our listeners can write in if they know these things, but incitement's fairly limited to things that are directly like, let's go hurt somebody or crowded exactly. yelling fire yeah. in a crowded theater or something where you encourage bodily harm. Yes. It's not saying I'm a Muhammad and offending people's religious sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I should say, because there are some in the atheist blogosphere, there are, there's a sizable proportion that says, you know what, the, the, the Pennsylvania atheists have the right to do this. But they don't make us look good by being a jerk and doing this. So there is the, yes, it's within your rights, but don't do it because you're just pushing people and, and you're pushing buttons. Yeah. Contingent, which, you know, I, we could argue about, yes, and whether it's appro- which approach to take or mm-hmm. maybe it's not productive in a, in a strategic long-term political sense to alienate people. However, I don't – again, back to the argument of he's within his rights, I guess, is, is the angle. Well, exactly. I mean from a, from a legal perspective, he can absolutely dress up as, as Zombie Mohammed um, and march wherever he wants. Because we have this discussion when we do things like Draw Mohammed Day or Blasphemy Day where should – you know, the, the two-pronged approach. Should yes. you do – should you on one level a robust – exercise of your rights by offending people because that's what Mm -hmm. you can do and just, you know, staking out the territory or strategically, should you be nicer and not not a jerk and not offend people and try to be, you know. And I have to sit on both sides of the fence because uh, on on this show, certainly we try to argue the facts and argue the evidence as opposed to ad hominem attacks and just trying to enrage people. But I also have to say my current profile picture on Facebook is my drawing of Mohammed for Draw Mohammed Day. Uh, you're going to – I'm going to – Which I put you. up in, in direct response to this zombie I'm choking Muhammad Dave story. right now. So I think I think there's there's room for both or maybe I'm just a hypocrite. So that's uh, shit list item number one. District Judge Mark Martin. Number two, um, uh, Luke, you sent this one in. A lesbian woman was denied communion at her own mother's funeral. So apparently uh, the woman in question, uh, her mother died and was the mother was uh, – 
you know, a member of a Catholic. And so they had the service uh, at a church and then they had a funeral mass where you can go and take the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And so this woman was like the, I think the first in line to go up yeah. there and take her wafer. And this is Barbara that, Johnson. Her from, name is Barbara, Barbara Johnson. And at the um, uh, St. John Newman Catholic Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And the when she got up first in line to get the face the priest and get her wafer, the priest said, uh, in effect, put his I, hand over the the thing and get said, your hand hey, out yeah. of the jar. Yep. I cannot serve you because of your lifestyle of living with another woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she, of course, um, you know, this is her mother's funeral. This is already a a sad day for her and then to face this discrimination. And she, she had also been told by people, she didn't realize that at the time, but when she was given a eulogy uh, with her facing the crowd in the church with her back to the altar, apparently her friends told her that the priest behind her had left, walked away. Until oh, really? She was do- wrapping up and then only then came back on again. So uh, she couldn't see that, but he was sort of disrespecting her by r- removing himself while she was wow. talking. Wow. And of course, um, since this this news has come out, the Archdiocese of Washington has responded in a statement um, here from CNN. They said, quote, in matters of faith and morals, the church has the responsibility of teaching and of bringing the light of the gospel message to the circumstances of our day. When questions arise about whether or not an individual should present themselves for communion, it is not the policy of the Archdiocese of Washington to publicly reprimand the person. So this is... At this the is, funeral of her mother, that's the time to do it, apparently. Exactly. Um, any issues regarding the sustainability of an individual to receive communion should be addressed by the priest with that person in a private pastoral setting. And I, I, I guess I would agree if that's... That would be a much better thing to do than at her mother's funeral make a, a show of it on, disrespecting yeah. her. Oh, I don't like this lesbian. Oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to tell her, oh, here's a chance. Her mom just died and, uh, yeah. and she's going to take the Eucharist. So I'm going to, I'm going to zing her when she comes up there. I'm going to stick it to her. Don't uh, you touch that Eucharist. Oh, uh, just a nasty, terrible That'll thing teach to her do. to be a lesbian. Um, but here, let's end on a positive note. <laughs> I like this props. For some props, all dead Mormons are now gay. You know, if you always have thought it was unfair that the Mormons could just, after the fact, do proxy proxy baptisms of Holocaust people and Mm -hmm. and all that, here's your chance to get revenge. That's right. Um, There's a website, alldeadmormonsarenowgay.com. And let me just read the website. It's, it's, It's a brief listing here. Sadly, many Mormons throughout history have died without having known the joys of homosexuality. With your help, these poor souls can be saved. Simply enter the name of your favorite dead Mormon, and there's an asterisk which says, Holocaust victims are not eligible for conversion, which is nicer than, of course, the Mormon church provides. And Simply enter the name of your favorite dead Mormon in the form below and click convert. Presto, they're gay for eternity. There is no undo. Don't know any dead Mormons? Click the Choose a Mormon button and we'll find one for you. You're welcome. Now, I have, I've done a few of these. I'm going to do another one now. (laughs) Peter Brown. Um, And here it goes with one click. Peter Brown 
dead Mormon has now been converted to homosexuality. Just like that. Just like that. Now, and, and we didn't actually talk about this in the interview when we talked about the proxy baptisms, but the idea of the proxy baptisms is not we take on this name, get baptized in their name, and now they're Mormon. It is extending yeah, they had an the offer, offer to them, which is, I suppose, the same way this works, too. Now, you can, you're not necessarily gay, Peter Brown, but we're extending that offer to you if you want to try homosexuality. So I, I just want to hear the 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 some the, the church's reaction to this is like that's silly you can't do a post posthumous right, gayness right. it's absurd uh huh uh huh yeah try to make that argument uh, anyway um, that's gonna do it for us this week we will be back soon in fact we will be back live we will be live on the air. Public Reality Radio, you can listen at publicrealityradio.org on Sunday, April 1st from 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For two hours, we will be live. We'll be taking your calls at 616-656-1680. So call in with your questions. You can also reach us on that day if you don't want to call, if it's long distance or whatever, on Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter is slash Doubtcast, and our Facebook is also slash Doubtcast. So you can reach us there. In the meantime, you can also send us comments and questions at Doubtcast at gmail.com. We'll be reading some of those live on the air um, for our 100th episode as well. You can also, of course, check out our blog at freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. Until then, our very exciting live show, which I know, Dr. Professor Luke, you are thrilled about because yeah. human interaction is your favorite thing. Uh, <laughs> Need a beta blocker. We'll be doing that. And then, of course, for our local listeners, we'll, we'll offer up more details soon, too. About- I'll be, if, if I'm not there... I'll be there by proxy. Appreciate that. Um, So we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.